Dovi had a um, an opportunity that the rest of us didn't really have today, which was the siren. Uh, you had a siren last night and today, right? And I'm, I am interested at some point, not now, and at some point to find out what happens in places like Beit Shemesh where there's some uh, friction between the different communities about what happens with the siren. We had it this morning at Yula. We had two uh, Kasim uh, for the Yom Azikaron, uh, where they also had the siren. We stood at attention, and we had one at Shalhevet. I was at the Yula one just because of timing. But uh, it, we, we take it very seriously. And so in that line, because today is Yom Azikaron, is Memorial Day, I want to start by telling you a very brief story, and then quickly take a look at a chapter that we did many, 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 many years ago when we did all of Sefer Shmuel. I don't know if I don't think any of you guys were in the shir at the time. Robert, maybe you were, he came in at the tail end, but we did all of Sefer Shmuel. We had a big festive seum. It was a multi-year project. And anyhow, the story goes as follows. Uh, when I was a young man, so this goes back several generations, um, and I was studying in Yeshiva in Israel, my parents, Aleyah Mashalom, from time to time would lead tours of members of their synagogue uh, to Israel. And sometimes these would be people who had never been to Israel, which I found, I always found kind of mystifying because these are people who were very involved in the community. They were, albeit not an Orthodox community, but in those days, the conservative community was much more Israel oriented. And I was just surprised to meet people who had never been there. But in any case, that's who they had. And so one time they led a tour while I was in Yeshiva. And so I, it was right now, it was the week of Yom Atzmo, like they came in for Yom Atzmo. And uh, so I went to the airport, Lod in those days, uh, and met them at the airport and joined, got on the bus. And I sat next to an older gentleman who was a very close friend, my, my father's best friend, who uh, had been very instrumental uh, in building uh, institutions here in L.A. If I told you his name, you'd recognize him. And he had been sort of like an uncle. Like uh, we had a bunch of uncles who weren't relatives, but who were close friends of the family. And he was an uncle. And so I sat next to him. Yeah, we hadn't talked in a little while, and I'd been in yeshiva, and so I started talking about yeshiva, and as we're passing by, he said, what's that, what's that? We're taking the road, Route 1, in the old days, this is before 443 was really available, and we're taking Route 1, and Route 1 in those days, I don't know if you remember, was much more narrow and curvy uh, than today. It's beautiful and big and broad and still curvy, and we're going uh, from the airport to Jerusalem, and Along the way, he kept asking me about what's that, what's that, about different uh, uh, sites. And I, um, I, a couple of them I mentioned, oh, that's a memorial to these soldiers, and that's a memorial to, to, to this group that, uh, that, that gave their lives to the country. And we passed Maleha Hamisha, which is a kibbutz about, uh, what, 10 miles west of Jerusalem that has five uh, pillars that point towards Jerusalem, and the kibbutz was named for the five martyrs who gave their lives to try to break the siege of Jerusalem. And then I pointed the castell where the battle for the, for the, uh, for the, to break the siege took place. And he turned to me and said, you know, it seems like this country is built on graveyards. And instead of getting defensive about it, because it sounded a little bit like a slur, um, I said, yeah, it is. Now that year, Yom Atzmaut came out the week of Acharimot Kedoshim, which happens sometimes. And I said, you know, that's kind of like the two parashot that we're going to read this week, which in our case will be next week. Acharimot starts with the death 
and some would call it a quasi-martyred death of Nadav and Avihu. If we look at Nadav and Avihu as the way that Moshe portrays them, as the Midrash says, Moshe said to Aaron, I knew that one of us would be the Korban to dedicate this Mikdash. I thought it would be you or me. I realized that they are greater than we are. And that is the sanctification of somebody through their death, where they gave everything and they died in the name of a cause that lived on beyond them. And the next part is Kedoshim. And Kedoshim is Kedoshim Tihiyu. You have to live a holy life. And that's what this country is. This country is a Hermot Kedoshim. I said to him, it's not a coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's very deliberate and very much driven by Jewish sensitivity that Yom HaZikaron turns into Yom HaTzmaut. You know, in America, we have Memorial Day, which is in the spring. People forgot about Veterans Day already. Memorial Day, which is in the spring, which is highlighted by sales and barbecues. And then we have six weeks later, July 4th, which is highlighted by sales and barbecues. But if somebody would say, well, Memorial Day should be July 3rd, you'd look at it like you're nuts. I mean, why do you want to waste a sale day when you can have a sale day earlier? But to us, it's the heart and soul of things because we realize that unlike America, where people were coming to a new world, we were coming back to an old world. And our claim on the world is not the claim of a colonialist, and I'm not taking, making a judgment on it. Our claim was a claim of a homeowner coming back, or more, more significantly, to, to a tree that is, is reconnecting with its roots and with its trunk. And we realize that, there, that, we, that the bricks that we build are built on top of the blood that's spilled. And the blood that's spilled goes deep, it's not just blood of people who were killed in army actions, people who just gave their life for the country and they gave their life to build the land and gave their life to remain in the land when it became difficult. And they're the reason that we're still able to come back. And so we know, now we don't have bricks. We have skyscrapers, but the skyscrapers rest on the firm ground of the blood and sweat and tears of the people who worked to make the land and who sacrificed ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice to make it happen. So it, it's, uh, there's a great significance. And now with Zoom, for the, this is the first time that we're doing this, we're having a Shi'ar in Yom HaZikaron and Dovi's here and for Dovi it's Yom HaTzmoot already. It's part of the amazing thing of having uh, people from different time zones be in a Shi'ar together. But for us, we're still mourning. Our candle is still going on the table. And for you, you, you already in another generation would have been on the street hitting people over the head with a plastic hammer. All right, so we have, uh, we don't, I, don't think, I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. But in any case, uh, so Dovi will forgive us if we, if we maintain uh, the, uh, the spirit of Yom Karon here. Um, in, and there is a passage in the beginning of Shmuel Bet, which, is, um, which is, has been used. I remember when I was a kid, we used to read this at the Yom Karon ceremony. Uh, and it is a, it's called Kinala David. It is David's elegy for Yonatan and for Shaul and for the army that fell in the war against the Plishtim. The whole story you can read starting in Shmuel Aleph Perak Chavchet, uh, all the way to the end of Shmuel Aleph into the first chapter of Shmuel Bet. The real background of the story is in the last very short chapter of Shmuel Aleph. But I want to focus here on the elegy because the elegy is a curious piece. Um, 
And it's all of 11 psukim. We'll just read it through the translations underneath. Uh, You should all have the the handout. Uh, And I want to here and there make a couple of points and then bring it all together to highlight not only the the kind of the undercurrent of what David is expressing in this beautiful elegy, but also perhaps what, what it may say to us. Now, right away, there's something striking. David has gotten the word that Shaul, Yonatan, the other, Yonatan's other brothers, Vinadav and Malkishua, and the whole army have all been killed, like a huge wipeout. Um, and you would think that David would either focus this elegy on the nation and on the army or on Yonatan, because Yonatan was David's best friend. And instead, it's Shaul Yonatan, and Shaul, you have to remember, had a very complex, and I'm saying it nicely, a very complex relationship with David. It was not at all simple. So let's see how this develops, but keep that in mind, Shaul Val Yonatan Beno. Now notice that it's Shaul, and then Yonatan is here associated as being Shaul's son. We're going to see that shift in the course of this elegy. But Yomer, and here's how he opens up. Now, this, of course, is interesting because Shaul and Yonatan are from Binyamin. So it's as if David is directing this elegy towards his own tribesmen, and that is the importance of teaching them how to shoot the bow and arrow. Why that's important will come out a little in a little bit when we, when we, uh, when we look further into the, into the text. Uh, but if you remember, David is, is reciting this in Siklag. Siklag is a town in, near the Gaza Strip where David has taken refuge under cover of looking like he's a defector to the Philistines, which, of course, is curious because the Philistines are the ones who not only go to war against us, but they're the ones who killed Shaul. So here's David in Siklag, surrounded by his own um, um, militia of 600 men, who are chiefly or exclusively from Shevet Yehuda, and he seems to be saying, this is a lesson to you about the importance of learning to, to, to be able to be successful archers. And that line disappears and doesn't come back in any sense. And then he says another line, which doesn't seem to make sense, which is this statement, this idea is written in Sefer HaYashar. Right? Sefer HaYashar, is a book, we don't know what it is. Chazal suggests that it's a reference to Sefer Breshit, might be a reference to Sefer Shemot. Uh, the Menezra is of the opinion that there were all sorts of other books that were extant during the biblical period that we don't have, and one of them was Sefer Yashar. He speaks about this in Bamidbar, Perak Hafalif. Uh, so I'm going to come back to what the Sefer Yashar may mean towards the end. And then he gets into what seems to be the actual elegy. Now, there are double and triple entendres everywhere here. This is a masterpiece of, of poetry. So Israel is like the fleet deer. Now, we have to remember why this is significant here. David has a, um, a, a soldier who is in his army who is considered as fleet as the deer. That's a soldier by the name of Asael. It's a cousin of David. Asael, in the next chapter, is going to be killed by Avner, who is Shaul's cousin. So this notion of the fleet deer and everything else running in, it doesn't stop here. 
But here the notion is <coughs> that there was, was an army that was fleet of foot, which throughout the Nevi'im is one of the markers of a successful army. Today, we don't think of it that way so much. But then again, we, well, infantry plays much less of a role for us. And he says, Al Now, Bamot are high places. And so you picture the Tzvi, the deer running quickly, freely on high places, and now they are corpses on the high places. Now, the reason that he focuses on the Bamot in Pshat is because Shaul and Yonatan were killed up on Har HaGilboa. I assume everybody here has been up to Gilboa. You know, it's a tall mountain overlooking him at Pechan. That's where Shaul and his sons were killed. Uh, that's why there's a town called Malkishua up there. That's why there's a town called Merav up there. Um, it's, like, it's like Shaul's burial place, Ki'ilu. So it wasn't buried there, but as if. And so their corpse is up on your high places. But there, there's other twists and turns here. Eich naflu giborim. Now the word eich, we normally see as an interrogative word. Like, how do you get somewhere? How do you do this? But echi is short for the word echa. It's a rhetorical question, which is, how could it be that the giborim fell? Now, this line, Atzvi Yisrael, Alba Motecha Chalal, Echlaflu Giborim, is not yet touching on the specifics of this event. It's saying Israel is a fleet, a fleet of foot, their army is a fleet of foot. They died on the high places. How could it be that the, that, the, that, the, that the heroes, that the brave ones, the valorous ones fell? And that could be applied to many things. And by the way, we use this line often on Yom Azikaron and the things relating to remembering our soldiers. But here it gets specific. Al tagidu vigat, al ashkelon. Now, by the way, important to note that back in the narrative portion of this, at the end of Shmuel Aleph, we hear that the Plishtim didn't know that they'd killed Shaul and Yonatan. They came up to the mountain the next day to strip the corpses and take whatever they could get from them of gold, etc. And they found Shaul and Yonatan. They got very excited and they cut their heads off and they sent their heads around and their weapons around to and and and, and hung their bodies up on the gates of Beit Sha'an, on the on the wall of Beit Sha'an. So they all knew about this. This is a source of tremendous celebration. But Davin, nonetheless, knowing that, says, Do not inform them. Don't publicize this tragedy to the plishtim. Why? Because what, what he's afraid of is that the daughters of the plishtim are going to be celebrating. Now, why is he afraid of that? What does he care? Let them celebrate. Typologically, and I'm going to bring an image to us, which, which I think we can all uh, uh, relate to. Typologically, the image of the enemy celebrating while we've fallen, is, it increases the sense of pain, the sense of defeat. We find throughout Tanakh, to look at your enemies, looks to look down, means to look down at your enemies and see them fallen. And to have your enemies look at you implies they're looking down at you because you've fallen. And it's not just the falling that's the shame, it's the looking at you that way. And here, I would, I would venture to, to add, is the Chilul Hashem. The fact that the other nations, the uncircumcised ones, are laughing and rejoicing over the fall of Israel <clears throat> is the same kind of Chilul Hashem we experienced all the way back at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, 
when the Aron was taken by the Plishtim. Um, David certainly knows that they, that, that they know about it. Why is he focusing on the daughters? So if you recall, and this is a signal story in the David-Shaul relationship, David is first taken by Shaul and Shaul likes him very much. But the more that David is successful, the more Shaul gets jealous and gets uncomfortable around him. And I'm being very generous when I say uncomfortable. Shaul wants to kill him. One of the, the nails in David's coffin, as it were, the coffin of that relationship, is when David had defeated Goliath and they had then chased the police team all the way west to Ekron. And on the way back, in every town, women came out to dance. Women came out to dance and celebrate and sing to the conquering heroes. And how did they sing? What was their famous five-word song? Shaul has killed with his thousands and David with his tens of thousands. Shaul was enraged when he heard this, which he should not have been, because after 40 days of sitting there with his tail between his legs, David came and saved the day, and Shaul was kept in the song, and he actually had first position. But it seems that this was like a well-known song that everybody in the country knew and was sung after a victory, where they would insert the name of the general first and then the king. And here it's, Ikash Shaul David which, which means that Shaul's now understanding that they've sort of elevated David into his position. Okay, but the point is that this celebration of the young women publicly dancing when there is a victory is something that we see in Tanakh. But the image here of the plishtim laughing and celebrating when they hear that Shaul and Yonatan have died to me, it brings an image that is still fresh, even though it's almost 20 years old. I don't know if you remember, but on September 11th in the evening, after we watched the buildings finally crumble, remember that in the afternoon we're watching them crumble, and then there was some footage coming from Aza. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. But in the streets of Aza, you were watching people dancing in the streets and people giving out candy to their kids celebrating at the terrible blow that was struck against the American Satan, et cetera, and all this. And it's like that compounded the, the pain. And that's, that's sort of what David is expressing here. Now, David then turns around and he curses the location of this event, which is another poetic device used in mourning. Hareva Gilboa, Gilboa is the mountain, al tal vi al matara no dew nor rain should fall on you, who stay trumot, or the high fields. Kisham giborim. Now there's something really twisty and, and, and intricate in this phrase. This is where the magen giborim, what's the magen giborim? Literally it means the shield of the valorous was rejected, was failed. Magen Shaul, bli mashiach bashamen. Now the simple reading of this is, that the shield of Shaul was not oiled. What does that mean? So evidently was in the ancient world a custom, not a tactic really, that they would oil their shield. The shields had a leather outside. They would oil it. And that way, if weapons came, they could use them to kind of have the weapons glance off them because we all oily. 
And it says if Shaul's weapon wasn't, shield wasn't oiled. And that's a very weird image. So there's something else going on here, something on a deeper level. Who is the Magen Giborim? Not what, but who is the Magen Giborim? Magen Giborim is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Notice that Hashem's name is nowhere here. Nowhere here in the Kina. And yet, Hashem, I believe, is alluded to here. Magen Giborim has been rejected. Let's see why. Magen Shaul. Now, Magen Shaul, I don't read, I'm not going to read as his physical shield, but as God who protects him. Think of Magen David, Magen Avraham, Magen Avot. Magen Shaul, Bli Mashiach Bashaman. Now, let's go back a little bit. As I mentioned, David had a very complex relationship with Shaul. On the one hand, David was Shaul's son-in-law. I don't know which way you want to put that in the complexity. But remember, Shaul, after, especially after he got his melancholia, was monomanic about killing David. David had several opportunities to, pro, to preemptively kill Shaul, and he did not take them. And what did he say to his followers, to his militia, to his guerrilla fighters, when they said, go get him, he's in the cave doing a Sudoku, go kill him. He is uh, sleeping here, kill him. David says, Nobody can hurt the one who's been anointed by God and be cleansed. In other words, David is very much anti-Shaul on a personal level, because Shaul wants to kill him. But on a hierarchical level, on a formal level of position, David has respect for Shaul. Not Shaul the man, Shaul the Mashiach, Shaul the anointed one. And watch what happens. David here seems to be saying something about his whole relationship with, with Shaul. Sham nigal magen giborim. The one who protects the giborim was gone. Magen Shaul, why? Because bli Mashiach Bashaman. As if to say that either his anointment was now re re revoked, or else maybe it means that his anointment had been revoked a long time ago, and now it became clear. So the oil on the leather shield now becomes symbolic of the oil on Shaul's head, which has lost its efficacy. And now that was mainly about Shaul. And now David joins Shaul and Yonatan together. He's describing Shaul and Yonatan like teammates at battle. That they would always get the blood of the corpses. They'd get the fat of the, of the valorous warriors they'd fight against. Yonatan with the bow. And by the way, back in Shoftim, we heard that the, that the Binyaminites were expert archers. And Shaul's sword never came back empty. Now, it's interesting because Shaul's sword did come back empty. You know when it came back empty? When he tried to kill David. Do you remember those times where he swung at David in the, in the room and David uh, evaded it? But when it came to the enemy, Shaul's sword always came uh, together. Now, watch what happens. Shaul the Yonatan. Remember I mentioned earlier about taking paradigms of songs and borrowing them? like the girls did when they with, with Shaul and, and David. I believe that David is doing that here. And I believe that this may be his reference to Sefer Yashar. Sefer Yashar may have been, just throwing this out, 
may have been a book that they had of aphorisms where you plug in the specifics of the event to fit, like happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear, and then you fill in the name, happy birthday to you. And that that, that may be what's happening, that there was a phrase um, that was, that, um, that was important in David's history and David's family that David now uses here. Take a look. Shaul and Yonatan, who were beloved, and we're going to come back to Nehemim in a minute, in their lives, and in their, li- in their death, they weren't separated. What is that alluding to? You have to remember, David, like everybody, has a history. And part of his history is his family history. Who's David's great-grandmother? It's Root. What is the most famous thing Root ever said? I mean, it became poet, poetry, it became a song. What is the most famous thing Root ever said? Your people meet my people. Exactly. Wherever you go, I will go, or whither thou goest, I shall go, whither thou lodgest, I shall lodge. Your people are my people, your God is my God. But the next line. Wherever you die, I will die, and I will be buried there. takes an oath. Only death will separate us. Right? Only death will separate us. That's important to note. Ruth and Naomi were not related. And yet that's the commitment she makes. Only death will separate us. That uh, some Christian denominations took and turned into a wedding vow. till death do us part. Yeah. But... Watch what, watch what David does. They weren't even separated in death, Shaul and Yonatan. Why? They died on the battlefield together. And now, interesting thing, one of my longtime students, Molly from back east, who was in a class that I gave early this morning, just sent me an email a couple hours ago with a beautiful insight. She said, perhaps David adding in the word v'hanni'imim here was an allusion to Naomi. Very good insight. Um, that she's kind of hinting to the to Naomi, who was who was the object of Ruth's commitment that I will stay with you forever. This is now Shaul and Yonatan. And now there's going to be one last line of Shaul, and then he's going to focus telescoping in from the army, Shaul and Yonatan, a little bit of a Shaul, and end up with Yonatan. Benot Israel. El Shaul Bechana. Now he turns to the daughters of Israel and says, You should weep for Shaul. Why is he talking to the girls? This is corresponding or in apposition to the girls of the Plishtim who should not hear about it. We don't want them celebrating. But the girls of Israel should weep for Shaul. Why? Now watch the reason he gives. It's very strange. Because he gave you jewels and beautiful clothes, spoils of war. That's it, really? That's what you can do with the king of Israel? That's your mourning for him? So I believe that what's happened here is that, that David is interested in setting an opposite number to an opposite number to the daughters of the Plishtim. And so he has the daughters of Israel, the ones who would come out and dance in front of Shaul when he won, now should weep. And so the reason the association is almost secondary. And then we get to the critical line of the piece, which started off, Ech naflu giborim. Again, Ech naflu giborim. How have the mighty fallen? And now he focuses on the one who was closest to him, which is Yehonatan. 
And this phrase again, a corpse on the high places. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'll, I'm going to explain another nuance to that. What are bamot? Bamot are high places, and bamot are also worship places that were typically done on high mountains, the bamot. And they show up in Sefer Shmuel several times. Alba Motecha Chalal reads us into three different ways. First of all, it was on top of a high mountain. So on a high mountain, there's corpses. Second of all, the Bamot, which were places where there was worship done, including worship to Hashem, when there was no Mishkan. It's as if say there's a corpse on, on the Bama. You have to remember, what does the Torah tell us about a Mizbeach? If you're going to build a Mizbeach out of stone, what may you not do? When the Torah says, you may not use a metal tool to hew the stone because you have lifted up your sword on it and you have defiled it. It's as if to say the high places have become defiled, defiled because Yonatan died there. And then the third thing, of course, is a different kind of an image of a korban, of an offering on the high places. Halal, of course, is not a word we use with the korban, but there's something of a triple entendre here. And then he says, Tsar li alecha yachi Yonatan. He calls Yonatan achi. Achi, by the way, in Tanakh, takes on the very modern meaning of achi, which in English should be translated as bro. Not as a sibling, but a very close friend, somebody who's an, or it could be a sibling also. And again, the Naomi Association. This line has been perverted into terrible directions uh, and totally off the mark, saying that you know that uh, that your love, I my your your love for me is more wondrous to me than the love of women. This is a critical understanding of what we might call brothers in arms of the relationship of soldiers who fight together, which is forged in, in, in blood and forged in, in cordite, if you will. And it's so powerful, it's more powerful than familial relationships that are created. Now, the interesting thing is that David and Yonatan never actually fought side by side. And yet David and Yonatan felt a kinship as the warriors um, uh, on behalf of... Uh, on behalf of Israel. And the, the, the kina ends, Ech naflu giborim And of course, this is the elegy that we say today, that how could it be that the mighty have fallen? These young men and women who were trained from their teenage years, like late teenage years, to be essentially tools of war, to be tools of defense, to be people with a heart and a, and a, and a heart of compassion, but a heart of courage, and of talents, whether the talents were in a tank or in a plane or on a boat or, or uh, with a grenade launcher, whatever it might be, for one purpose only, and that was to defend our people and to defend our state. And we look and we say, Ech giborim. And we realize that, of course, this is the day that we have to set aside time and spiritual and emotional energy to remember and to commemorate and to honor their loss because we can't properly celebrate Atzma'ut in a couple hours uh, without first appreciating that and, uh, and recognizing that we have a, basically an unpayable debt of gratitude to the 23 plus thousand 
chayalim and lochamei uh, machteret that since the really the early part of the of the 20th century have fought to help create and to um, and to defend our state. So yihizicham baruch may the memory be a blessing, and uh, we will now move uh, this evening to chagatzma uh, utzameach.